0: A dream. This nation will rise up, and live out the true meaning of its creed.
1: We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created
0: equal.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, they gave me a list here. The first person I was instructed to call on was. Kelly
1: O'Donnell, NBC.
2: I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall.
0: It's the Ricochet Podcast with Bob Long and Peter Robinson. I'm James Lilacs, and today we talk to Congressman Mike Gallagher about Afghanistan. Let's have ourselves a podcast.
1: I can hear you!
0: Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast, number 558. I'm James Lilex in Minneapolis. Peter Robinson is somewhere in sunny California. Rob Long, we believe, is in San Francisco and has elbowed his way through the homeless hordes and scraped the detritus off his shoes to be with us. He'll give us a report on Babylon in the Bay in just a little bit. But, of course, the big story. I don't know about you guys, but yesterday when I saw Biden put his head in his hands while answering a question, or trying to, I imagine Putin sitting up straight in his chair and thinking, my God, I thought I was going to have the Baltics back by 2035, but I'm going to have them back by 2024. I've never seen an image like that portrayed. And people are saying, oh, well, it's a sign of his compassion and his uh, fellow feeling and all the rest of it. No, I did not get the feeling at all. I get the feeling of somebody who just seems to be falling apart in chunks before our face. Or is that just partisan hackery? Uh, taking advantage of the moment is that
2: republicans pouncing and hoping to use this to their advantage in 2022 i agree that that image is is extremely striking and as far as i can tell i only watched a few moments of the event and did not see that bit of it but as far as i can tell reading about that image which is all over the web today he had just been asked a question a fairly straightforward question Mm -hmm. and the reason he put his head in his hands was to gather his thoughts we're, we're at that stage.
3: And it all happened so quickly, too. I mean, <laughs> yesterday we heard about ISIS for the first time in, I don't know, how many, three years, suddenly ISIS was back. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess we all expected ISIS ISIS to come back, but not within 72 hours of the crisis. This seems to be um, an accelerating descent uh, uh, where, where – the American casualties yesterday were greater than the last two in Afghanistan, the last two years or th- almost two and a half years combined. Um, the <laughs> what, what's what's so astonishing about it is just the just the sheer incompetence and the sheer slapdash way this was implemented, ordered, planned. Um, I mean, it just boggles the mind, um, and and in in, in an actual. Country with leaders with dignity and honor, um, there would be resignations. People would be resigning in shame. I can't stay here anymore. I blew it. Um, let someone else try. It would be an honorable, an honorable outcome for a lot of the people in the um, apparatus here. And I just <laughs> what, I, what I see is more and more attempts at trying to spin or work. We I mean, even, even. CNN last night when I was watching it had a hard time turning this into anything other than what it is, which is a gigantic disaster that was chosen and elected and um, uh, um, selected and for, for no reason happened other than we have a president and a presidential leadership um, that is incompetent.
0: Yes, and and, uh, apparently a military leadership that is not exactly the best and the brightest at this point, too, in some echelons. Uh, Right. Uh, We we all know, we've all gamed this out in our heads and how they seem to be doing this in absolute backwards fashion. If you're going to get out, you would do the exact opposite of what they do in the sequence that they did. But the part about the ISIS that you mentioned there, Rob, is interesting, too, because, A, we're told, no, Taliban and the ISIS, they they hate each other. They hate each other. There's no way they would have worked together on this one. Call me a little bit cynical, perhaps, but it does not seem outside of the bounds of possibility that they would join forces against the infidel in this particular instance. ISIS gets to bomb a lot of people and kill a lot of people, which is their thing, and Taliban gets to wash their hands of it. Hey, what, they make us look bad. Plausible deniability, Mm -hmm. when it's entirely possible that they were working together on this. In any case, the presence of ISIS means that the Doha Accords are null and void. They were supposed to keep out groups like ISIS. They haven't. So exactly, what are we conforming to again? Are, are, are we simply sticking with this deal because it's the honorable thing to do?
2: Yeah, I, I'm struck again. Rob just made the central point again. I to me that I to which I keep returning again and again and again. This this was not like the fall of Saigon. No where there had been negotiations. It was clear that the, the country had Congress, demonstrations, the Academy. Nixon recognizes the pressure. He and Kissinger spend the first term concentrating on the problem. They opened formal negotiations with the North Vietnamese. That final image of people desperate to get under the last helicopter as it departs from the embassy roof in Saigon is a horrifying image. But that was... Deliberate and in some sense carefully and competently managed. You right. could even right. argue, in fact, I would argue that if the Democratic if the Democrats had not blocked a certain funding to the South Vietnamese that Gerald Ford requested after he became president, South Vietnam need not have fallen the way that it did. The boat people need all right. In other words, the withdrawal itself took place intentionally and for the most part competently, not that it didn't have its horrifying aspects. As John Podhoretz pointed out, John, other people pointed this out, but John's the one who tends to put things succinctly, all Biden had to do in Afghanistan was nothing. Right. Nothing. No American soldier had died there in the last, I think it was 18 or 20 months or Almost so. Almost two our, years, our, yeah. Our casualties were now down to, zero. Our troop presence was down to, what was it, 3,500, a little under 3,500. We've got 20,000 and more in South Korea. We've got 20,000 and more in West Germany. To this day, we have military, over 100 military bases. We still have a large naval presence in Okinawa six, six decades, seven decades after the Second World War. I myself thought the Afghanistan- War was, war, H, H, we'll discuss this with the guests. One of the things to discuss is where did the mistake, was it a mistake to go in? Was it a mistake to stay after the first three weeks? Where did the mistake start to pile up? That's a good question, but the situation was under control and all Joe Biden had to do was nothing. Given that he chose to get out, this is the part that just, I don't understand. There should be, there should have been some reservoir of professionals around him. And particularly, this is, you both mentioned this. To me, the most shocking part is that this was a military failure. Those guys are supposed to be able to handle logistics. They didn't. They're supposed to be able to handle, see, I mean, let's just put it this way. It's a... Even the Bay of Pigs wasn't quite this kind of to- needless debacle. All right, I've said it. I'm saying things that help people have but I'm just I'm, just, I'm astounded. I, I would say two things. One is that it, it, whoever who's
3: ever in the room making the making these decisions, you know, the Saigon airlift photograph is going to be repeated, of even course you if do. you do it perfectly. Right. that photograph is inevitable in the situation and the second thing i'd say is that it's really interesting to go back i mean there it, there has not been a wholesale cha- i mean i don't know I'd, I'd be interested to know about the military aspect there has not been a wholesale change in military leadership structure and military leaders from you know the trump days to today there really hasn't mm-hmm. been i mean these are like they, these are the same people trump wanted to pull out of afghanistan in may i mean he wanted to pull out pretty much every other week, and right. he was talked out of it. Correct. They talked him out of it. He wanted to bring the Taliban to Camp David,
2: and he was talked out of it. Who talked him out of it? Well, H.R. McMaster, for one. I, well, I've right. talked about this right. with H.R. No, I mean, right. there, there were professionals. But, it wasn't but, easy to talk Donald Trump out of something yeah, and paid a pr- but price somehow, for it, but you but could there, do it. There,
3: all those people aren't gone. They're somewhere. I'll They're somewhere in say. uniform. Yes, the yes, yes. the adjutants, whatever. They didn't. They, there's a, maybe there's a there's a change. There's not a change in the joint chiefs. Wh- who, who tried to talk Biden out of this? What do they say? Or did they not say anything? Right. But how? How or he do you just go didn't from, listen from or he did not listen? That's that's the other problem. Like how do you go from uh, um, a president who wants out so badly he wants to bring the Taliban to Camp David and be out in May? And he's talked out of it to a president that wants to be out so badly for some weird, gruesome, strange anniversary, September 11th celebration, which is so weird anyway. Right. And he's not talked out of it. And I want to I, I think as an American, I deserve to know who said what in the meeting and who, as James put it,
2: simply didn't listen or simply thought he knew better. Could I tell two two little stories and then the two of you feel totally free? To say what I hear plenty as it is anyway. Oh, Reagan, 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 you're just bringing him up again. But something (laughs) – okay. So the story number one is, of course, in October 1980 – what was it? 1983, the Marine barracks in Lebanon are bombed, and we lose over a couple hundred men. And instead of doubling down, Ronald Reagan has a couple of meetings, and it turns out, honestly, the diplomats are in favor of increasing our presence – but he can't find any military rationale. If he put the Marines back in, what's the military mission? There right. was no answer to that question, so he got out. All right. That's point number one. Point number two, this is a story this this was told to me by Ed Meese, who was in the meeting. Grenada, this was, Grenada, as you may recall, happens just a couple of days after the bombing of the Marine Corps barracks. There's just a huge amount going on over the course of about four days. And There's a request from the Caribbean states that we do something about Grenada and it turns out our intelligence suggests that the Cubans are there and there's weapons caches and so forth. Ed Meese said General Vesey, who was then the – Jack Vesey, I think I'm pronouncing it – I know I'm pronouncing Jack correctly. Ed Meese is in the situation room and Ronald Reagan gets a briefing. They pull together the military operation over the weekend and Ronald Reagan asks one question. How many Americans involved in this operation? And General Vesey thinks through the, this many ships, this many, so, and he gives the president an answer. And then Ronald Reagan says just two words, double it, double it. I want to go in so big that this happens very yeah. quickly and it keeps right. our casualties down and it keeps their casualties down. So there's some kind of basic willingness to willingness to assume the role of commander-of-chief over the military combined with a real recognition that war is I, – I don't uh, – uh, it's not risk-averseness. Yeah. What do you see in that story? It's partially risk-averse now. I mean what, – what What's there that Joe Biden is lacking?
0: Oh, any number of things. Where do we begin? Where do I begin <laughs> to tell a sweet love story? It, it's great to talk about Reagan, but the, the depressing thing about that is that it's 40 years ago. It's like at the beginning of yeah, World War I, talking about American character in 1903. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's ancient history to be talking about what Trump did in 2020. What matters is, is on the, the is. ground now and what's happening and the fact that we got a guy at the top who is utterly, completely be- convinced of his brilliance. And I don't think that he actually thinks about it anymore. I just think it's an assumption that he's been working with for the entire years of his effortless, meaningless, gas-filled career that he's the smartest guy in the room. And nobody's ever, Mm. ever stepped up and said, on the contrary, on the contrary, when we graph this out, you're somewhere down near the dimmest. That's part of the problem. So he believes in his own instincts, I think, to the point where he would overrule everybody in the military. Trump, for whatever reason, listened to them, either because he respected their authority— or he knew yeah. in his heart that he did not know enough to be able to make the decisions that he was making, or he liked delegating, or the, yeah. or the person had flattered him on the way into the conversation, any, any number of those things. But the idea of having somebody who is capable and confident in projecting power is gone with this party because they're all about this whole, the, the international covenants and the fact this is a post-national, transnational era. It, 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 Biden is the inheritor of the worst ideas of the left in the last 40 years, and it's being— Played out with a guy who is one of the least capable minds we've had in that office for decades. Yeah, I, I kind of just just
3: uh, uh, oh, I used to say um, that um, that Trump was the the or that or, or the, the by Bi- uh, the Obama was the NPR version of Trump. I would say, like you know, I mean, I'm sure not, not by – Obama was the NPR version of Trump arrogant thinks he knows everything has a bunch of slavish acolytes in the press and sort of in the public who think everything he does is brilliant he thinks he's brilliant obama was the the nice version of the narcissist trump is the you know the whatever the fox news version of that biden is the npr version of trump i think so we're we're not getting any we're not improving things are not getting better they're just sort of going sideways um, and so I do – I I would just say the difference between the, in those 40 years, which I think is important to understand, is that uh, it was probably an easier argument. It li- literally was an easier argument. I remember I was around then when Reagan went to Grenada. Grenada is an island in the Caribbean. It is within our sphere of influence. Yes. It is, yes. according to the Monroe Doctrine, we get to do that. Right. Uh, and not doing <laughs> that, it was clearly in American interest. There were American citizens there, all sorts of things.
0: The second thing I would say is, um Rob, I'm going to have to stop you right there. We're going to hear the second point in just a second, but i got to tell you about this. You know, I, I, I don't want to just bowl over Rob and say, you know, shut up, i got things to do. No, it's you know, the way you deal with people, the way you talk to people, the way you treat people, it adds up to your legacy. You don't want anybody thinking you're a jerk, do you? No, it's little details in life. And the details in life extend not just to how you behave and not just the things that you want to do for other people, but it's, you know, sometimes it's the things that you do for yourself. That's where Bowland Branch comes in. Boland Branch was actually started by a husband and wife team that wanted to create a textile company that cared about the details that would make their products last and make your life better. They realized no sheets on the market met their standards for quality, so they created their own luxuriously soft and expertly crafted signature sheets. Bowling Branch is dedicated to quality at every step. These sheets are designed and manufactured for maximum comfort and durability. They don't cut corners, no. They've got the perfect balance of weight and breathability to pamper warm or cool sleepers throughout the season. And let me tell you, that is, that is relevant right now because here in Minnesota, we've had a stretch in 90s. My Bowling Branch sheets were perfect. We had plunging temps a little while ago with cold nights. The Bowling Branch sheets were perfect. You think sometimes, what, well, they're electric and they plug them in? No, it's just the right balance, the best sheets you can ever have. And, you know, This last month has proved that for me. There are no middlemen between you and the Boland brand sheets, so you get luxury quality for the fairest price. They stand behind their products, and they honor a 30-night worry-free guarantee if you're unsatisfied, which you won't be. So give your bed the White House treatment with the sheets that three presidents have fallen in love with. To experience an entirely new standard of comfort, Visit com, and you can get 15% off your first set of sheets with the promo code RICOCHET. That's B-O-L-L-N-Branch.com, promo code RICOCHET. We thank Boland Branch for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And at some point, Rob is going to tell us his second point, but more to the point for the moment. we got to get to our <laughs> guest, and we cannot wait to do so, Mike Gallagher. Elected in 2016, Mike Gallagher represents Wisconsin's 8th congressional district. Who's a United States Marine Corps intelligence officer serving seven years from 20, 2006 to 2013 on active duty? I uh, met him on last week, but an impromptu national security briefing forced us to reschedule. We've got him here now to tell us about what's going on in Afghanistan, and then later we can possibly discuss why the Vikings are going to dominate Green Bay this year. But uh, that's, uh, that's for the end of the podcast. So, what should we know about things on the ground today?
2: Well,
1: obviously, um, it was a tragic day yesterday, Uh, 13 uh, Marines, well, 12 Marines and one Navy corpsman killed and, uh, you know, made all the more tragic because they didn't have to die. Um, You know, obviously, it's, it's ISIS Coruscant who's responsible ultimately, but I think this was an avoidable tragedy. I mean, the fact that we found ourselves boxed into this position where we have a single exit point and we're effectively relying upon the Taliban, an organization that's been killing Americans for 20 years to guarantee the security of the perimeter at HKIA, Hamid Karzai International Airport. By the way, they're probably going to have to rename that airport soon. Um, Uh It's just astounding to me. And, you know, the the irony uh, is, you know, in a desire to avoid further casualties in Afghanistan, uh, President Biden created a situation in which we've now suffered the, deadly, the deadliest day in a decade. And it's a day that's going to live in Marine Corps infamy. You know, as a Marine, you're sort of taught, you know, a lot of these these, these tragic incidents. Beirut comes to mind. The Mayagas right. crisis comes to mind. And sadly, now we've added Kabul uh, to that list. So just a, a gut punch to every Marine and, you know, puts a, an exclamation point on a, on a complete fiasco of a military operation. And so a sad day.
2: Hey, Mike Peter Robinson here, United States Marine Corps, Intel officer, now member of Congress. You're talking to three laymen, but we're as baffled as anybody in the country. To how? Of course, the short question is how could this have happened? As far as I can tell, and what do I do? I'm just I'm not going to briefings the way you are in Congress. I'm reading the newspaper. But as far as I can tell, we built an Afghan military that relied – that was built, constructed, trained to rely on American air cover, and then we withdrew the air cover. We knew roughly – we didn't know, it turns out, in any detail how many American citizens were in Afghanistan, but we knew roughly that there were some thousands. And we gave up Bagram Airport which is outside Kabul and has two runways and which we controlled until we simply surrendered it and instead took the Kabul airport, which has one one runway and is in the middle of Kabul. And apparently there doesn't seem to have been any planning to get the military out. That was planned. But there doesn't seem to have been any planning. No, none of the sequencing that I think you'd expect in a carefully planned operation so it sounds to this layman like one military failure after another a failure of planning a failure of logistics a failure of intel is that right
1: uh, i think it's it's partially right you know early on i actually had said that this was a massive intelligence failure and i'm not sure that's actually true anymore in other words and i say this as an intelligence officer i mean The intelligence community had very dire assessments about what would happen if we pulled out precipitously. Now, uh, I don't think there were sufficient indications and warnings of what was happening. Basically, after the Doha deal, the Trump administration's deal with the Taliban, Taliban commanders started signing all these local surrender agreements with Afghan National Army officials, local government officials, and that should have been a bigger, you know, system is blinking red moment than it was. But, you know, the intelligence community doesn't give you like a script of exactly what's going to happen in the future on a precise timeline they provide estimates you know based on what information they have and i was a human intelligence guy and as we used to say the problem with humans is that it involves humans you know humans can mislead humans can misremember it's never precise it's an area of fire weapon. so i'm not sure it's accurate to call it intelligence failure i do think it's primarily a political failure, and everything ultimately has to do with poor political leadership at the top. But clearly, there is a planning disconnect within DOD, and I think more to the point, a lack of sufficient communication between the State Department and the Defense Department. And my understanding is that for months leading up to this, military officials, um, urged on by members of Congress Democrats and Republicans veterans usually uh, we're trying to get the State Department to take the SIV issue more seriously and, and figure SIV. out okay, what's the plan the special immigrant visa so basically Thank if you're you. a translator or you fought with us that you qualify for the special program we've we brought about I think you know a little less than 20,000 people in the country under an SIV issue uh, there's a uh, incidentally there's a TV show now called United States Aval about a marine veteran and a, a translator uh, that's based on my buddy a former marine captain uh who took over my job on the center Foreign relations committee um so but there was just no plan from state and then and then more to the point i think the president has been deliberately revising history and outright lying about the military advice he got i mean the reason it wasn't as if um the military came to him and said you know what bagram has no value let's get rid of bagram the administration imposed an arbitrary cap on the number of troops we could have in the country and then based on that the military said well with this number of people we can't secure both the embassy and bagram so that's a combination of a lot of different things i do think operational failure uh, a political failure to sort of make the case as to why a small presence made sense what the value of bagram would be not just in the counterterrorism fight but also in the competition with china over the long term as a way to threaten assets on their western flank particularly their space and counter space assets and then i'll add on to that sort of the imprecision of intelligence you have a toxic stew but um ultimately the buck stops with biden
0: as much as I would love to just burst in here and interrupt a congressperson, we just don't get enough opportunities to do that these days, I'll have to be honest, we're going to use this opportunity of, I have to tell you about this, fast-growing trees. When is the perfect time to plant trees and shrubs? Your big store experts will tell you, uh, anytime, or uh, yeah, it's a great question, but actually the best time to plant is fall, which means now is the time to go to fastgrowingtrees.com. No more waiting in lines, messy cars full of dirt, digging through a lackluster selection of trees that are just sitting there looking thin. No. Go to fastgrowingtrees.com and choose from thousands of variety of trees, shrubs, and plants expertly curated to thrive in your area and deliver to your door in one to two days. Whether you're looking for shade, privacy, fruit trees, or just added color for your yard, every plant is shipped with a well-developed root system ready to explode with new growth. And frankly, I got one of these coming and I can't wait because I had an ash that had to be taken out. That's right. I had my ashes removed and because they're diseased. But when I went onto the website and look what I could replace it with, it was astonishing. It's like I'm not missing that old tree. I'm, I'm already loving the new one that's coming. And, it, you know, the thing about having a good root ball, I, how many, how many Arborvitaes have I lost because of a bad root ball that I got from the big bar, big box place? So, no, fall is planting season. Don't let anybody tell you different. Join over 1 million satisfied gardeners at FastGrowingTrees.com. Plus, the 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee means all your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting. Now through November 30th, go to FastGrowingTrees.com slash ricochet for 15% off. That's 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com slash ricochet. FastGrowingTrees.com slash ricochet. And we thank Fast Growing Trees for sponsoring
2: this, the Ricochet Podcast. So, so okay, the buck stops with Biden, and there's one more question. This is – it's a horrible question to ask, and it's a very difficult question to put to a member of Congress, even if he's of the other party. So you handle it any way you have to, including saying I'd rather not discuss it. But the president has been in front of the cameras once a day for the last – or almost once a day for the last week now. And you don't have to be – a crazed right-winger, to look at the comments in Twitter and begin to wonder, whoo, he's 78 years old. He seems to be having trouble grasping questions, formulating answers quickly. What's absolutely unambiguous is that if you contrast the Biden we've seen over the last few days with the Biden who was vice president just five, six years ago, this is a different man. So the, the question is, has, is this something that's getting talked about in Congress? And is there – that's to you, to you as a congressman. Now here's to you as a former Marine. What, what happens when the ch- chain of command seems to be fuzzy at the very top – Because nobody can be quite sure who's running things to the extent to which the commander in chief actually is making decisions. Of course, he has subordinates around him in the White House and the extent to which. Well, you get the question. So how how do you handle the problem of old Joe Biden? Yeah,
1: well, the the old old Joe Biden. um... Has much in common with young Joe Biden. They both seem to be very bad at making foreign policy decisions and, and judgment. I mean, he has a near perfect record of failure when it comes to foreign policy. And, and make no mistake, I mean, this is, I mean, this is the same cast of characters that gave us the precipitous Iraq withdrawal, right? I mean, this is the job for which General Austin was hired. Uh, he was CENTCOM commander and and was responsible for the iraq withdrawal this is part of the reason that i opposed his confirmation and wrote an op-ed in wall street journal to that effect at the time um you know this is why mccain opposed then deputy secretary blinken's nomination sullivan was in a key role colin call architect of the iran deal set a policy uh, at the pentagon i mean this is the same cast of characters so we shouldn't be surprised if we're getting a similar outcome um as for the question about Biden, and by the way i'd add to the toxic student come back to this the intense politicization of the highest ranks of the military, and they've been thinking fights with us on a bunch of woke nonsense for months now, and I, it's fair to say I think they took their eye off the ball in many cases. Um, uh, as for Biden, um, I he, ha- he clearly uh, has lost the step. Um, he does not inspire confidence. Uh, as for his mental state, all I would be doing is, is speculating. But I think anyone who's watched him this past two weeks, even if you have confidence in his mental state, you shouldn't have confidence in his integrity because he's lied repeatedly or he's just completely misinformed or out to lunch. But uh, either way, he's failed utterly. The, the commander in chief test when faced with his first major foreign policy crisis i mean if he had a shred of honor he would resign but that's not going to happen and i'm not necessarily necessarily sure we'd be upgrading with kamala harris so what are we left to do um well someone needs to be held accountable um congress needs to be leading a thorough investigation i had a bill on the house floor earlier this week that would have required them to report to us every single day on the number of americans left in country and not allow them to withdraw until we'd gotten every american out that wanted to get out but all the Democrats who in private were critical of the president um, and were questioning his leadership in public voted against that on the on the floor because they didn't want to endanger the sort of $5 trillion authorization for the Bernie Sanders budget. So we're in a very dangerous situation right now. And it's hard for me, to, I think the White House is cynically betting that this is a news cycle that will blow over, that this is a, a messaging problem, and that a month from now, two months from now, The American people won't care and, you know, Biden is with the American people on wanting to get out of Afghanistan. I just disagree with that. I think the humiliation of America angers even those who want to get rid of our presence in Afghanistan. And I think just the lack of strength and leadership from the commander in chief uh, has disillusioned a lot of people. And once you lose that confidence, it's really hard to get it back. Um, And I think this is going to be a very big problem for the Biden administration politically and a massive problem for America geopolitically for at least the next three years.
3: Wow. Uh, Congressman, this is Rob Long. When you ended with the words next three years, I suddenly got optimistic because I I think we can last three years. I was worried we're talking (laughs) about a stain for the next 30 or 40. Um, So, yeah, you're right. It it, it is it is Biden's first uh, giant global political crisis. Um, But, of course, it's his own – of his own making. Uh, Often these these things are – you know, it's the – what is it, the the famous um, uh, TV ad, you know, the telephone call that comes in the middle of the night. The the president is supposed to be ready to handle whatever crazy random things occur. Um, This was not a crazy random thing that occurred. It was a crazy random thing that was planned and executed. Um, And I guess here's my question. I mean uh, we had a president – not too long ago, um, and I you know full disclosure always bugs people listening to his podcast. I was not a fan. Um, and he wanted to he wanted to um, pull out of Afghanistan on in, in, in May in, uh, May of 2020 before the election. He was talked out of it. He wanted to bring the Taliban to the camp, to Camp David for a treaty signing. He was talked out of it. Who are those people who talked him out of it? Surely some of them still have White House passes. Surely some of them, still are, are, are advisors to the pres, any president. You just mentioned a cast of characters. Weren't there any – isn't there anybody in the cast who's been in the cast – was in the cast four years ago or eight years ago? Well, I guess my question is why did nobody – why could nobody talk this president out of such an outrageously foolhardy and painfully costly blunder?
1: You know, it's interesting. I was in some of those rooms. I'm not saying like I talked Trump out of some of those decisions, but uh, at least on the, for example, when he was trying to pull everybody out of Syria precipitously, a group of us, myself, Dan Crenshaw, and a few others, went to the White House and and made a counter argument. We ended up landing somewhere in the the middle. And there were a variety of occasions where I got called to the principal's office because, you know, I had a different view of the world. And Trump would often change um, his position. Uh, and then Trump would do things that I think had a, a positive impact on the credibility of our military deterrent that were very gutsy decisions, uh, foremost among them the decision to take Qasem Soleimani off the, the battlefield. Um, in this case, you know, I just, I, I, I think it's fair to say that um, Secretary Blinken and National Security Advisor Sullivan, um to the extent they were even willing to push back, um, didn't push back forcefully. Um, I guess right. we won't know until a lot of transcripts of these discussions are are declassified. Um, there's been some suggestion that, you know, General Milley uh, has, has, was telling them that this was going to be a disaster. I don't know if that's true or just sort of like CYA uh, right. maneuvering behind the scenes. Um but, Austin, will, again, will, I will, will we ever know,
3: do you think we'll ever know?
1: I think we will I mean listen we we th- th- like it, it might take a while, but um you know I, right. my my whole orientation is you know as an early cold war guy, and you know we you know there's a process through which these these debates subsequently get unearthed, and the historical record gets corrected. um It's hard for us now to get to the bottom of what happened, particularly being in the minority in the House where we don't have any. Right subpoena power. But I do think I do think we'll know. But I just think they made a political bet. They, they thought we can get out. Um, you know, of course, it's going to be a disaster, but someone's got to pull the Band-Aid off. And at the end of the day, you know, Americans want to end right. endless wars. We'll get the talking point. And then some stupid 23-year-old White House staffer came up with a good idea to, to make September eleventh, 2021 the official date of, of ending so the weird. war, mission accomplished. It's just bizarre. They, and That's they're by so hands the to Taliban a huge propaganda victory. So I don't know. That's I don't have a good answer to your question. It, it amazes me. I know I have Democratic colleagues, at least in the last week, that have spent significant time in the White House, in the Oval Office, trying to convince the president to reconsider the August 31st date. But he is inflexible. Uh, he right. is tripled down on this position. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's astounding to me. Um, incidentally, Do- I <laughs> – go ahead, sorry.
3: I would say it's a sunk cost fallacy. Um, yeah. Uh, what's going on there? Um, but, but I, I also I, I have a couple other questions. But I want to say to you, I, I, I'm thrilled to know that you were um, you're at least uh, part of the inspiration for the United States of Al. One of my oldest and best friends is the creator of that show. Um, they they do have a GoFundMe. One of the writers um, got some his family out I think yesterday, and is trying to get some more people out. And we'll post a link to the GoFundMe in our show notes. So, but I'm, I'm I was thrilled to hear that. Um, I, after Vietnam, the U.S. military, um, which was reeling from that failure, went on a kind of a you know a vision quest. They 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 they, they in, the internal reforms of the U.S. military in the nineteen seventies were pretty top to bottom. They were pretty radical. They brought Seymour Hirsch. The muckraking sort of anti-military uh, reporter into the into West Point to teach to, to lecture. They they brought in all their critics. They rethought their way of making decisions. Um, do you see anything like that coming? It, it, or, or I, I would I'd say rather than making a progn- prognostication, do you think that the U.S. military, after this, should be rethinking its decision making, logistics forming? Mission architecture. One hundred percent.
1: One hundred percent. There's a few obvious things that need to happen. One, we need to revisit entirely the Goldwater-Nichols reforms. Uh, some of which were good, but some of which have resulted in a dysfunctional uh, strategy and planning process, as well as a joint staff that is out of control. There's about eighty generals on the joint staff mm-hmm. with two thousand staffers, and it, it it is the impediment to uh, quick decision making and creativity within the five sided building. The second thing we need to do is be very wary about the arguments that have already started to be deployed by Secretary Austin. He's, he's sort of pushing this concept of right. integrated deterrence, which is a, a jargony buzzword intended to cover for the fact that what they are trying to do at the end of the day is cut conventional hard power in the areas where we need it most, uh, and they do not want to make the hard decisions necessary to free up resources to field a posture of deterrence by denial, specifically in Indo-Pacom, even more specifically in the First Island chain. And the big decision you need to make is between the services. We have an arbitrary one-third, one-third, one-third budgetary split. But if you look at a map of our priority theater, the Indo-Pacific, one thing becomes apparent. There's a lot of water on that map. So it probably doesn't make sense to grow the size of the Army. You need a smaller Army in return for a bigger Navy and a Air Force that has a longer range, as well as a Naval uh carrier strike group that has a longer um uh, range in terms of the dare good access. luck congressman uh, uh, good yeah.
3: good luck at that committee hearing <laughs> um can i uh, can i
1: offer a final can i offer a final answer what, to your previous question that just came to me or we out of
3: sure, time yeah yeah absolutely you I, uh, got I, I have one more question i gotta turn you over
2: to james Mike, Mike, you're yeah. nobody in politics ent- unless you can wrangle Rob Long and tell him to back off and give you time to answer what you want to answer. Push Rob around. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. it's taken <laughs> me years, but, you, but, but you're a former Marine and a member of Congress. Just roll him back.
1: Dang. Dang it, Long. Don't you know who I am? I'm 250th in <laughs> seniority in the House. I'm right in the line of succession. Um, <laughs> no, quickly, on, on, the, on the why did why did no one push back, something I've been thinking about, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts You hear Biden and his advisors talk about these past two weeks, well, you know, it is in the Taliban's interest to help us safely get out. It's the Taliban, you know, if they want to be responsible members of the international community, we've gotten assurances from the Taliban. I think this betrays some worldview that that is really misguided, which is to say they're sort of like grafting their own ivory tower, western mindset onto the Taliban. And I think this model that that sort of envisions the Taliban sitting back, rationally calculating their economic utility and worrying about their invite to Davos is a very problematic one. Um, If for no other reason than the Taliban is not a monolithic entity, it has a variety of factions. um, And the Taliban's interest may be in Humiliating us as much as possible on the way out, right? It may be in taking as many oh, man. American hostages as possible, uh, and then selling those hostages to Al Qaeda or Iran in order to mess with us for decades to come. I don't think the Biden administration has the faintest clue what right. the Taliban's interest is because they're they're sort of thinking about the Taliban in the way they think about themselves. Can there, you, can you imagine?
0: Can you imagine Winston Churchill on the day that Hitler rolled into right. Paris, saying that Mister Hitler has to—he is having—I believe Hitler is having an existential crisis, in that he doesn't <laughs> know if he wants to be a yeah. uniter of Europe or a tyrant. You're right; it betrays an absolute naivete about these people, and it's stunning to find it in people at that level of government. Rob, so, I think you had
3: one. Yeah, just one more question. I, I, I agree with you. I mean, in a in a. I don't know what I would say, but in a, in a different time, in a more honorable time, those people would resign. That's what you do when you blow it, you resign. Yeah. Um, they, I think they tend to feel, as narcissists do, that uh, we can't resign. We're, th- we're the best you've got. Uh, whereas they could all be yeah. replaced by better people probably in 24 hours. So, um, my final question is this I mean, and, and I, I have my answer to it. Um, shouldn't we just have stayed?
1: Yes. Um, I mean, that was the argument uh, I was making was that a a small force um, working largely by, with, and through uh, Afghan partners who aren't perfect, got it. You know, understand I spent the better part of my 20s working with, uh, you know, uh, Anbari tribal leaders in Western Iraq. I understand the imperfections of our partners on the ground, particularly in the Middle East, where the fundamental rule is that things can always get worse. Um, So I'm I'm not looking at this through rose-colored glasses, but... uh, Clearly, uh, compared with the chaos we have right now, and I think the chaos we're going to see um, in the, the weeks and months and years to come, that was a very low-cost, high-impact yes. investment. And I think where we failed, and I, and I point the finger at myself here because I feel like I didn't make good enough arguments, was to talk about the value of Bagram, as I said before, not just as a counterterrorism asset, but as a long-term asset that you need in the global competition with China. Um, and, you know, keep in mind, we hadn't lost an American uh, in the previous 18 months. So uh, I, I fully believe we should have stayed. And I think through a, a very unscientific and inefficient process of trial and error that cost us a lot in terms of blood and treasure, we actually arrived at a pretty sustainable posture in both yeah. Iraq, Afghanistan, which is, the, which is what I call the highlight approach. It's high impact, light footprint, force your local allies to do the majority of the fighting. We, we act as enablers. We provide logistics, intel, air support. That's a workable strategy over the long term. And that ultimately frees up resources to deal with China uh, while not irresponsibly creating vacuums that suck you back in. And ultimately, that's what I think will happen here. Sort of tragically and ironically, the Biden foreign policy will suffer the same fate as, say, same fate as Obama's, which is to say their well-intentioned efforts to pivot to the Pacific will fail because they misunderstand the basic alliance structure in a different region, and they just misunderstand how power works in a different region of the world. And so they'll they'll create chaos and get sucked into it.
3: On a simple blunt level, I know Peter wants to jump in again, and I'm done, but a simple blunt level, it seems to me Taliban in caves equals good. (laughs) And that's what we achieved— and I think we got into trouble when we decided we needed to achieve other things other than Taliban and caves. That's the American. That's this overriding American interest in Afghanistan and the region in general. Taliban and caves. Um, at a very, uh, at a, at, we, and we levered it pretty well. It seems to me. So I, I'm I'm on your side there. Um, and I know Peter's Peter's a lot waving. to jump in.
2: Uh, Mike. <clears throat> We're running over the time that we told your staff we would keep you. On the other hand, um, be, on, be honest. Yeah. Do you really have anything more important to do now than answer one more question from me? Really?
1: Well, I'm I'm actually driving now to Fort McCoy to visit the, and inspect the area where we're going to be receiving some of these Afghan refugees. So I have, oh, so I have the answers. A few more you do have something there, so. important to do. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, no, I have I have 15 minutes. We don't need to do all of that. But I'm I'm at your disposal for that <laughs> time.
2: So yeah. here's the question. We were talking. Robin James and I were talking before you came on about past big presidential decisions. The Marines get hit in Beirut, and Ronald Reagan can't find out from Cap Weinberg or anybody else what the military mission is supposed to be, so he pulls out. We want to go into Grenada, and I was told by Ed Meese, who was in the Situation Room, that when the chairman of the Joint Chiefs finished his briefing, the president asked how many— soldiers and seamen involved and he got the answer and reagan said double it double it let's go in big so it happens fast reduce casualties on our side and theirs you think back to john kennedy in the bay of pigs he sees a debacle taking shape and he knows something about debacles because the operation in the pacific in which he got his pt boat shot out from under him was itself a debacle if you read up on that pt boat engagement None of them even got a torpedo off. It was badly planned, bad, badly executed. John Kennedy knew when he saw a bad operation. And here's the question. For more than four decades, we had commanders-in-chief who had served. Most of them had seen warfare. John Kennedy, George H.W. Bush, Ronald Reagan had bad eyes, so he was made morale films, but His good friend, Jimmy Stewart, flew combat missions over Germany in the Air Force. Joe Biden never served. We have an entire generation. Well, let's put it this way. Rob on the GLOP podcast the other day made a point that right through the end of the 60s, the backstory was that a lot of the characters in sitcoms had met each other during the service because that was a common American experience. And it isn't anymore. How in a democracy do you operate a first-rate military when the public has no experience of war and even the commander-in-chief and those around him have only the most minimal experience of war? How do you do it?
1: Well, I wrote a a 600-page dissertation uh, that was pretty much on this question, uh, this question of uh, foreign policy experience and presidential decision-making and the extent to which presidents learn from failure. Um, and I arrived at no conclusions, which illustrates uh, that political science is a broken uh, uh, institution. And the fact that they passed me also, I think, really puts the stake in the, <laughs> the heart of the value of political science. Um, but it's interesting. I think the, the type of by, – by the traditional metrics that academics use to measure foreign policy experience, Biden scores very high, right? He was on the Foreign Relations Committee, he's, you know, spent, you know, the 20 decades he was in uh, uh, the Senate or however long it was flying around the world, talking to foreign leaders, you know, he's vice president, Uh, that counts for something, certainly counted for something in Nixon's case. Um, uh, And yet, it doesn't seem to have improved his decision making or given him a coherent view of the world that would be useful in this case. So the type of experience, I think, does matter. And operational experience, uh, those who have sort of seen how decisions made in D.C. can become very messy when implemented at the point of the spear is a very useful type of experience. So, for example, Truman scores very low by traditional metrics on foreign policy experience, but he also uh, had a pretty decent um, military record, uh, which I think helped him. He was also a student of history, uh, which helped him in office. Uh, Eisenhower scores off the charts and obviously had personal relationships with a lot of his um, subordinates that helped him form what was probably the most coherent and effective decision making structure in history. I think part of the reason why we need to support and encourage veterans running uh, for office in Congress, uh, and I think it puts them in a better position to do oversight of the executive branch in general and the military in particular, because having been at the pointy end of the spear uh, with an understanding of how complicated that can get i think they're in a better position to push back on military leadership and challenge their assumptions and ensure that we are investing our money wisely and also that we have coherent war plans right that we that we can actually explain in a non-acronym filled non-jargon filled way okay how what is our plan for deterring the chinese from invading taiwan how are we in concert with our nato partners deterring uh, Russia from you know uh, invading with little green men or, or in other fashion uh, Baltic states et cetera et cetera in other words the promise of veterans serving is not that they're going to just give the Pentagon a blank check but that they are willing to challenge generals and admirals uh, on their thinking and when it comes to the commander in chief um, that's a harder thing uh, to do uh, I think the, the the historical record is mixed. Uh, some some presidents with foreign policy experience did very well, like Eisenhower. Others with little to no foreign policy experience, um, you know, uh, Lincoln, uh, Reagan come to mind, did very well. And then some with uh, amazing foreign policy experience are not remembered as as great uh, presidents. Um, so uh, I don't know. In general, the all volunteer force is a is a positive thing. It's a it's a great thing for our military. Uh, but at least the one thing that gives me hope is that we're starting to see. 9-11 generation veterans run for Congress and flex their oversight muscles in a way that um, I think Congress has failed to flex in recent decades.
0: Congressman Gallagher, it's been great having you on again. We really appreciate it. I invite you to come to Minnesota where our cell phone coverage is extraordinary because we've solved the problem of the cows knocking over all the towers. Uh, so, But good luck on your mission. Thank you for joining us. We hope to talk to you again some, soon sometime down the road. And I was lying before. I know the Green Bay is going to is going to mop the floor with the Vikings, and I'm just going to I'm just going to say it right now.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, have you solved the problem of not having won any Super Bowls? Is that a problem yeah. that you guys?
0: Oh, no. Okay. no, not not a problem that we've solved. As a matter of fact, that's why I'm not even going to start because I know I'm I'm beginning from such a weak position. But then again, <laughs> you know, things can change uh, any given Sunday. Uh, so we may gloat or taunt later in the year or the season.
1: But I really yeah. doubt
0: it. Anyway, thanks for your service and always, and uh, we hope to speak to you again. Thank you. That is, uh, yeah, that Super Bowl thing just, just stings. Just <laughs> stings. Um, so we've had cell problems today, of course, which happens. You know, and they are, frankly, something of a miracle, the fact that you could be driving around in a state like Wisconsin, Wisconsin, and you can uh, talk to people all over the world. And Rob's in San Francisco, and he's talking to us through an iPad. I mean, all these little devices. But the thing of it is, is that cell phone tower is going to know where you are. And that browser is going to tell them, you know, what your IP address is. So how do you keep them from knowing that stuff? Well, we can talk about your browser. ExpressVPN, that's what you do. Look, going online without ExpressVPN is like leaving your kids with a nearest stranger while you're using the restroom. Most of the time, is probably fine, but you you never know who you're trusting, no. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, cafes, hotels like Rob, airports, etc., your online data is not secured at all. No hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal all kinds of data. This is valuable information. It doesn't take a genius-level IQ to do it, either just the right hardware and a criminal mind. And I think there's lots of those out there. Well, ExpressVPN keeps you secure, create a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet encryption is so thorough it'll take a supercomputer over a billion years to get through and by that time of course you've disconnected and left all it requires is that you fire up the app on your computer phone or tablet make one click it's first rate security on the go uh rob for example i believe uh rob you don't trust the networks that you're on when you're out there so you just click that one button and chat away or do your banking or talk to somebody without a worry right yeah, I mean, I actually feel like these worries
3: are, are um, you know, two years ago, three years ago, we would have thought, oh, come on. But I think these worries are real. I think if the, getting a VPN is a smart move. I think being careful with your communications is real. I was uh, talking to a, 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 a member, of, a, a, a leader in the Senate just the other day, and he said, hey, are you on Signal or WhatsApp? Um, that's how you would prefer to chat. Uh and that's uh, that's that goes this other piece with VPNs, which I have. Um, and I know more than I know a couple of people who've actually done this um, with uh, with VPNs and they like it. And I've and I done it with ExpressVPN.
0: Yeah. Well, whoever says, you know what? I want to be less secure. I don't need more security. Listen, secure your online data today by visiting slash ricochet. That's E X P R E S S V P N dot slash ricochet. And if you do so, you can get three extra months. Free, free, expressvpn.com slash ricochet, three months free. We thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. Well, here we are. Uh, so, Gavin Newsom, you guys uh, are in California. What's the word on the streets? <laughs> I, always, I always love when you know, I'm in Minnesota and people say, what's the mood in the, what's the, mood, what's in the mood?" International Falls, Minnesota? I'm the faintest idea. I haven't been up there for six years. Well, I have
3: not been in California in, many, in a couple of years, I think, um, well, maybe a year and a half. The, I think the January before COVID. So last time I was here. Um, <laughs> and it's like rare that you get to come from New York City and look down and I go to California and think, oh, you rubes. I mean, there's this terror. like You know, everybody's terrified here of this. I, 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 don't, I, so I don't know what the mood is. What, what the mood certainly seems to me to be mask up six feet away. I'm looking out my window. Union Square. It's a beautiful day. Uh, Union Square is empty. This really? is madness. It's madness. Yes, it is. They're so all, afraid, they're get all afraid rid afraid of, I would say get rid of uh, of, of Gavin Newsom, but – and I dare not hope that um, our friend of the podcast who came and gave – if you have not heard Larry Elder on the Ricochet podcast, you must – you must go back into the – it was a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, I forget where it was. Um, and we kind of – I mean, honestly, I was like kind of rolling my eyes thinking, okay, you know, look, I love Larry. listen to Larry all the time on the radio in L.A. He's great. I do it in L.A. every now and then. He's not going to. He can't. It's not going to. It can't. And then it can. Mm-hmm. So it might.
0: Well, as the newspaper said, he is the black face of white supremacy. Which shows <laughs> that actually yeah. they're trying – they're, they're taking his candidacy
2: seriously. Yes, they so are. Yeah, sure. things like that. Yes, they are. He um, – Gavin Newsom is behaving, at least if you look at the clips of him as he answers questions on – look at the evening news out here. Gavin Newsom looks like a man who's scared. And yeah. um, And Democratic donors are being shaken down in a major way all over the state. One of the crazy pieces of the recall procedure is that the sitting candidate – is not considered a candidate. Therefore, he's a, permitted to spend anything he wants in running against the recall. He's not considered to be running on his own behalf, but he's running against the recall. So Gavin Newsom is raising literally tens of millions of dollars to spend in this campaign. Larry Elder and the other 45 people who are listed on the ballot are legally considered candidates, so they fall under very strict campaign finance laws. And can't spend much at all. And even at that, both of my bets on predicted are ahead. I'm above water and predicted. I took the bet. (laughs) I took the bet that the recall will pass. And I've made, I'm a big, let's put it this way. I'm not that confident. I put 10 bucks down that the recall will pass. That's up a little bit now. And then I put 10 bucks on Larry Elder to win. And um, I'm doing all right. So if you believe in, betting markets you can believe you can really believe uh, but i actually i really do truly think that larry will win and if you think of the Dem- set aside <laughs> afghanistan think of the earthquakes in the democratic party first eric adams the most conservative he's not conservative but he's the most conservative. conservative he's, he's He's yeah. pro-safety in the streets. He's a former chief of police. He's a blue He's blue-collar pro Democrat. Cop. He's a blue-collar yeah. Democrat, and he won the Democratic primary in New York, defeating the Alexandria Ocasio, Ocasio. Uh, there. That was rather Trump-like oh, wow. of me, wasn't it? <laughs> you um, just did a thing. Yeah, I just did a thing. <laughs> the, the, the progressive party – and then uh, Andrew Cuomo got his backside handed to him and is now the former governor of New York, and if Gavin Newsom loses in California – that will be the California earthquake, and it will be, And will all, the only people feeling the tectonic shift will be Democrats. Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> well, that, yeah.
3: well, the thing about Democrats is they own everything, and they have uh, almost universal control of everything in California. They can only lose. They can't win That's anymore. A good That's a good They point. can only lose. And I do love the sort of tortured anti-recall logic that I've been seeing, which is uh, Diane Feinstein's 9,000 years old. So you should make sure we keep Gavin Newsom in the state in, in the in the governor's mansion.
2: She could which die is at any
3: moment. Because she could die at any moment. If the governor gets to appoint, then you know, and uh, knowing Gavin Newsom, he'd probably appoint himself. But uh, it, it just seems <laughs> like very—they're not even being like uh, tactful about it. It's just like she's old, she's uh, something's going to happen, and uh, and we don't want Larry Elder to select the
2: next California uh, senator because if he does, the Senate. Switches. You're sitting in a hotel room in San Francisco. I looked this up the other day. Do you know the last year in which San Francisco elected a Republican mayor? 1906. Oh, it's like the 50s, right? 1959. 1959. San Francisco was a, was a conservative town for a long time. George Michaels, who ran against Ronald Reagan in the uh, primary for governor in 1966, as I recall. Yeah.
0: Right, right, right.
2: It's the same with every major city in America.
0: Yes. I, sure. I, I, I mean, and Rob's right. They can't lose because they have everything, but they have to keep conjuring up additional boogeymen in order to terrify people to keep voting for them. I mean, what is how do the how do Californians, Peter, I'd probably speak to you about this, explain why cities that used to be beautiful and livable have now become overrun with 10 cities and are, are are not pleasant places to be. It's it's not because of evil Republicans. It's not because nasty conservatives have put a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, regulations that keep housing from being built. Right. It's 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 not as if uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in his spare time was uh, handing out fentanyl to get people. I mean, it has to this is a failure of government, a failure to maintain a civic civil society on that level. How much of that is motivating people to vote? Because I, I saw a California Democratic politician who came out and said, I've been a Democrat all my life, and I'm voting for the recall and against this guy because of the disorder. The, the One of the things that we ask cities to do. Uh, we had a post in Ricochet from a member who was saying that uh, they had denied a permit for some scouts to go hiking, I think, in a park because uh, it was unsafe because of the homeless people, if I'm paraphrasing it correctly that the, 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 the they were giving precedence of the to people to live in squalor on a public park and because of that the citizens themselves couldn't use it safely
2: yeah this is um, why this is why Larry's candidacy is so thrilling because the answer to your question is that rich white progressives have mm-hmm. controlled the state with right. the complacent not particularly With the support of minorities, African-Americans are only 8% of the population out here, which is well below the national average of about 13%, but also Latinos. Larry Elder is talking back, and one place his message seems to be resonating is among Latinos or Hispanics or whatever the correct, Latinx, whatever the correct term is. That is not the, Latin. The Do not say Latinx you never say Latinx never say
0: Latinx I <laughs> never want to hear that those phonemes <laughs> okay, come out sense. of your mouth again
2: okay. so ethnic group by ethnic group by ethnic group I'm sort of opposed to the idea of polling that way but that kind of polling That's is being done and yeah. the only ethnic group which is majority for the recall is Hispanics right they 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 are they smell the progressive rat at last they are but look i mean the, the cities have become
3: kind of these uh, fever dreams for the far left right very very rich people living kind of bohemian lifestyles and very very poor people just kind of how they like it um middle class drivers like uh like latinos um uh, are get get pushed out and, and that is a, a big problem. If you look at this, even the census data is pretty clear. The census data is really fascinating. Something, as they crunch the numbers, the number of um, – the, 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 the drop in African black population in the cities, all, all that sort of like fascinating movements that have giant political repercussions, and I suspect will have giant re- political repercussions uh, for, uh, towards the center and towards the right and away from the right. left. Brilliant. You know, it's 20 years ago, was it? Um, Roy Tixera and somebody else. I forget his name. Rudy they wrote this. Wrote yeah, they wrote a book called The Coming Democratic Majority. Yes. yes. Letter, in which they proved incontrovertibly that there was a Democratic majority about to happen. And the only problem with that book was that it didn't happen. Um, but for a while, it was absolutely the blueprint for the future. Just sit back, relax, and uh, the country moves Democrat. And it just didn't happen, and it's not happening now. Which is sort of interesting. I mean – and I think the, what you said earlier is – exactly what James said earlier is exactly a perfect, perfectly emblematic, right? Latinx, Latinx. When you poll white progressives, they say we prefer Latinx, Latinx. We're going to use Latinx. When you poll Latinos, they say what? No. Latinx is preferred I think a, a, fewer than 5% of, of, of American Latinos – like that phrase, mostly because they like Spanish, the language that they right. either grew up with or their their abuelas uh, spoke. And in Spanish, unfortunately for the left, is a gendered language. Yes, it so is. If and if, if <laughs> and the argument from the white progressives is your language is racist. You need to speak English, um, which is a uh, kind of colonial, right? Isn't it? I mean, anyway, it's
0: all about colonialism. It's all about enforcing and imposing values. Just the proper ones so they're not opposed yeah. to, they're not opposed Could. to the force image, it's just as long as they're the right ones that'll mean right. good things happen you know rob mentioned that the that african americans are moving out of the city was that what you were saying yeah the, the, or just the, po- the black population in the city is declining right i think in minneapolis i don't know what the exact numbers are but i know that the northern tier suburbs the first ring post-war suburbs are becoming increasingly black and that the south ring suburbs i think are becoming increasingly hispanic because they're affordable and so, you, the, the the federal government, through their RIFRA, what does that stand for again? Something about affirmatively furthering fair housing. <laughs> wants to control the makeup, the ethnic makeup of every single little city by withholding funds to make sure that there is equity, not equality, but equity, and that the population here is what we want it to be. And so it's all these top-down managed programs that are, that, are, that praise density and the rest of it. And they want to connect them all to the light rail and the rest. Well, it turns out that what these people want when they get the chance is a house of their own. They don't mm-hmm. want to live right. in a big cinder block Soviet beehive. They want a yard of their own and they want a backyard for the kids to play in. And they want good schools. And the suburbs here are still places where they can go. But, and again, that's where they're going to lose a lot of these people because they're telling them, no, 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 density, move to the city, move in a dense place. And they say, no, I don't want to do that. And don't call me Latinx. Hey, we uh, are going to call you, however, um, our grateful listeners for listening and sticking around. I want to tell you that Boland & Branch and ExpressVPN and, and Fast-Growing Trees, oh, what a great idea. Support them for supporting us. And, of course, why don't you join Ricochet today if you haven't? Why haven't you? What's your problem? Also, you might listen to the best of Ricochet radio show hosted by moi. to speak a little French there. Uh, it's this weekend on the Radio American Network. Check your local listings, as we'd we like to say. And give us that five-star review at Apple Podcasts. And yes, this marks the 500th time I've begged you for that. It really does matter, though. By the way, it really does. I mean, look, uh, some
3: people are listening and are like, "I'm not going to join you, stupid Ricochet." And I, would, to them, I would say, please reconsider. It's fantastic, and you should join. I, we need you to join. But if you're if you're really not going to do that, please at least go and give us five stars because it doesn't matter. <laughs> It does matter. <laughs> it
2: does.
0: <laughs> That's right. What does it cost you? Would it kill you to give us five would
2: stars? Would it kill would, you? It absolutely
0: yeah. wouldn't. And it does. I like to read the reviews on iTunes, especially when the shows are 2.3 stars. That's when it gets fun. But uh, <laughs> nope. No, give us a five star review and tell people why you love the show. And then, uh, you know, on we go to 600, 700, 800 episodes. It's been fun. I love the guests. You guys have had great questions. Uh, thank you for listening. And we'll see everybody in the comments
2: at Ricochet 4.0. Next week, boys sweet uh,
1: she
2: Join the conversation.
0: She got a mind, oh, you. Yeah. well, she's